0: Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa esa eza bhikkhu yang samahito yata budhang janati pasati uh, the the phrase in Pali which I chanted after the uh, homage to the Lord Buddha uh, was uh, a phrase from a, a well-known Sutta uh, in the Sangutta about how uh, the stages of the purification of the mind and the stages of abandonment, the stages of growth towards liberation occur naturally. As a uh, cause and effect relationship as a process and I just uh, chose the particular causal relationship between uh, samadhi and wisdom where uh, the Lord Buddha said that dhammata e way. it is natural, it is uh, a natural consequence that samahito, that uh, for one who is, has samadhi, yata janati pasati, that they will see according to truth, according to reality, according to Dhamma. And <coughs> this important uh, little sutta, because it shows uh, a natural process which happens uh, when people come across the Dhamma and what is necessary for us uh, to realize that Dhamma. The teaching which we just chanted, the famous fire sermon was taught to the, the ascetics, the Jatalas, who were fire worshippers and uh, the result of that sutta those ascetics (coughs) saw the Dhamma and became fully enlightened. And we've just listened to that Dhamma and unfortunately that, I don't think anyone here saw that Dhamma to such a great depth as those uh, fire-worshipping ascetics. And it emphasizes the point that even though the Dhamma the beautiful teachings of the Lord Buddha are available to us and we've just chanted it in the original Pali language even though there are uh, adequate translations of these still it's not sufficient by itself to liberate the mind. And <coughs> understanding this we have to realize it's the whole process which is necessary in order to gain that liberation which those fire-worshipping ascetics gained at uh, Gaia Head, Gaia Caesar, on the time when the Lord Buddha spoke this teaching to them. There was a whole process which went on before, a long time of preparation which led to that event of full enlightenment. And that uh, long period of training is called a gradual training. And it seems appropriate at the beginning of this Rains Retreat in the first week, the end of the first week of the Rains Retreat to point out that the whole three month retreat is to a gradual period of training, of awakening. (coughs) And one should reflect and understand upon the factors of that gradual awakening in a particular sutta from which I quoted the, the natural consequence of these things. Uh, there is a sequence, and that sequence usually it starts in that particular sutta from someone who is keeping sila, who is keeping virtuous conduct. <coughs> and remember that sila can also be the uh, include sense restraint, not just keeping precepts but indriya sanghara, sila, the restraint of the uh, senses, uh, sila, virtuous conduct. For a person, they say, who keeps such virtuous conduct, they don't need to think, oh may my mind be free from remorse. It becomes a natural consequence, (coughs) it's unavoidable, it has to happen that a person who Uh, Keeps a high level of virtuous conduct and includes sense restraint, but they will be free from remorse. And they say it's natural, that it's an unavoidable consequence that someone who is free from remorse (coughs) will have a a quality which we call Pamuja, which is like joy, the lightness of the mind. And of course, we can contemplate our own virtuous conduct and our lapses in conduct. We can uh, contemplate our own practice of sense restraint and our lapses of self sense restraint. And uh, it doesn't take much for us to realize the truth of this statement that if one practices a a blameless, (coughs) a blemishless, a stainless sense restraint and practice of virtue, then there will be a sense of joy in the mind. <laughs> a sense of joy in the mind because joy is a, a state of energy of the mind. If one is practicing virtue and sense restraint, the energy which is available to you is not dissipated through worthless activities. It's not dissipated uh, uselessly. Already we have enough duties to do in this world which we have to do to protect the monastery and to keep it running. <coughs> it is a shame that uh, when we take away all of the, the energy which is necessary, that we waste so much with fruitless thinking, with a lack of sense restraint and a great source of lack of energy is through the dissipating of that joy, through not keeping your precepts, your virtue, pure and beautiful and blameless. But if one does keep the virtue blameless and practices sense restraint, (coughs) the Lord Buddha is saying here, this has to happen, it's a natural consequence that one will feel gladness. And at this stage of the retreat, I'm trying to encourage uh, the meditators here, as those of you who have had your interviews with me already will know, to encourage the gladness in the practice, the gladness to be in this monastery, the gladness to be uh, able to sit meditation or walk meditation for many hours of a day, even the gladness to be able to serve the Sangha when it's your turn to serve the Sangha and serve the monastery, to develop that Pamuja, that brightness, that gladness of the mind. I'm encouraging to go further than just a natural process and just push that along a bit, <coughs> to encourage it even further. Sometimes that uh, we don't spend enough time contemplating the results of our actions, and we take the uh, the freedom of mind which comes from the practice of virtue for granted. <coughs> but sometimes it's worthwhile just to contemplate on your virtue. This is one of the forty gamatanas which the Lord Buddha um, taught: the seal and sati the reflection, contemplating, looking back on the, the purity of your virtuous conduct. When one does that it brings forth a great sense of happiness, of Pramuja in the, in the mind. <coughs> and the B- Lord Buddha said that for someone who has this Pramuja it gives a sense of pity. And it, the pity of the mind, it starts this is where there's a natural process starts, which is important to understand the place of meditation and insight in the whole uh, stream which we call uh, liberation. There's uh, a common sequence which occurs so many times throughout the, the Pali Canon, throughout the teachings of the Lord Buddha. It's a sequence which, which has many different beginnings but then becomes to Pamuja, which leads to pity, <coughs> this, this uh, joy, this uh, interest, this happiness with what you're doing, which leads to tranquility of both body and mind, pasadi, which leads to happiness or ease of the mind, the Sukha, which leads to Samadhi, which leads to seeing things as they really are, the Yata dasana. <coughs> Which leads, as it said in that sutta there, to nibbida, to the, the <coughs> deliberate revulsion turning away from the things of the world, which leads to their fading away, which leads to their cessation and the knowledge of your liberation. This is a natural sequence, uh, and like a snowball running downhill, which once it's began just gathers up momentum and gathers up. Itisukha until it just leaves the whole mountain. This is the, the natural process of liberation. The most difficult part for most meditators is, it get, is getting it started. And once it started to leave it alone so that it can pick up its momentum and it can do its job without being interrupted. Once there is that gladness in the mind, the pity at this particular stage is that which gives it the interest in this, this Dhamma, and <coughs> the interest <laughs> in what sila and what restraint is pointing to. All sila, all restraint is uh, a fading away of conscious activity. Instead of increasing the activity of the senses of the body and the mind, it's settling it all down. It's calming it. It's allowing these things to, to settle and then many things disappear. It's like cleaning off all of the dirty dishes off your table. It's cleaning off the rubbish off your desk. It's getting rid of the excess things which clutter up the mind. This is the function of sealer and the function of sense restraint. We have all these senses and this mind in this world, and it can get cluttered up with so many things. Some of those things it's hard to avoid because it becomes your duties and responsibilities, but so much of what clutters up the mind has nothing really to do with responsibilities and duties. But it's added there because of it's a mind which isn't very intelligent, which isn't very efficient. <coughs> Even when one does a job. So often, because one does not know how to let go of the past, the memory of that work lingers in the mind for a long time. The anticipation of what's going to happen in the future also lingers. Part of the training in this monastery, as all monasteries, have to be the ability to be able to let go of past and avoid the future. Because otherwise, you'll never be able to find the space in between the duties which take you into the past and the future, you never be able to take, find the space, the time, to meditate and develop. They will never be able to find a monastery without duties and responsibilities. If you find one, then after a while they make you abbot, and then you get some more things <coughs> to do. So they always have this this thing to look forward to. You know, duties and responsibilities. But of course, with those duties and responsibilities, even for myself, I just look very uh, ruthlessly at the time which is taken from me. And I still have much more time, even myself, I have much more time when I don't really have to do things than when I have to do things. So I always ask myself, how well am I using that time which I have? for myself, alone in my hut, in that seclusion. When I reflect on this way, that I never allow the past to (coughs) hinder my freedom of the present by getting into self-pity, oh I have to do so many things, why is it unfair, why can't I have as many retreats as other people? I never allow myself to, to worry about the future, what's going to happen next, can I stand this any longer? Because all of that is just the stupidity of the mind which stops you being free in this present moment. When I allow myself to be free in this present moment, I've got all the time in the world. That time in the world is attained because I've calmed, let go, abandoned all of the past and the future. So often, one of the reasons why you can't or find it difficult to let go of the past is because <coughs> the past, which is calling at you, eating at you, gnawing at you, is because there is something you've done which is not according to your, your precepts. You haven't kept your duties and responsibilities as a, as a monk, as an anagarika, as a nun, or whatever. <coughs> and it's that remorse from the past. Which is one of the reasons why we can't let go of that past, why we can't abandon it and free ourselves from it. The virtuous find it easy to let go of the past because there's no lingering <coughs> business there. They've done their best, they've done well, it's finished with, it's gone. So, also sense restraint helps one to let go of the past. So often if one looks too hard with interest, if one listens too keenly, taking the words of another as something important and valuable, that then they will linger in the mind, they will echo as a ping pong ball, sort of going up and down again and again and again. I've taught in the past that one should make one's mind like a padded cell. So even if it's a ping pong ball of a thought, as soon as it hits the walls of the mind, it doesn't bounce back again. Anything which one hears, which one sees or which one feels, even a thought in the mind, (coughs) by creating the image inside of a padded cell, as soon as a thought strikes the consciousness, it goes squelch into the sides and does not reverberate. A thought once recognized disappears from the universe and never re-arises. A feeling once felt is gone forever. This is how one can let go of the past, especially if <coughs> one observes one's precepts and does one's duties and responsibilities. And you can see how that freedom from remorse, that freedom from business, that freedom from the past, can give rise to the joy of that freedom. All happiness in this gradual path towards enlightenment arises as a result of the abandonment of an affliction. In the same way that a person who is sick with a fever feels a sense of happiness as soon as they are well. In the same way that when one is free from the affliction of the past, That one feels this wonderful joy and happiness, the freedom. And this is a freedom which is the result of things ceasing, disappearing, settling down. And this is why it (coughs) is an indicator to the mind. It's an indicator to the mind of the way forward to greater happiness, to deeper (coughs) realization. The way of letting go of the objects of consciousness. We've already let go of the the grosser objects of the the mind caused by the lack of good sealer, caused by paying too much attention in the world of the five senses to the point that our experience echo and reverberate sometimes for many days, many weeks. Here we're not paying attention to those things. We're letting them go, we're calming them we're denying them, we're renouncing them. This path is the way of renunciation. <coughs> that brings up the joy of the mind. And from that joy we get this interest, this pity. The pity is that happiness which is associated with interest. There's something going on here, there's something fascinating here. This is what I've been looking for all along. This the mind knows is the way to freedom. And with that knowledge of the way to freedom, or rather with that instinct that this might be the way, this should be the way, (coughs) there comes up this quality of the mind called pity, rapturous interest if you like. These are hard to give these phenomena words in the English language, but those of you who experience these things will be able to recognize my attempt to find some sort of words to to pen in uh, this uh, mental phenomena of pity. But it is that which (coughs) uh, interests the mind and and thrusts it forward. Now whenever you have that interest and that joy in what you're doing there is a sense of contentment there. The word contentment is also comes as a result of pity that contentment is another description for the word of Pasadi, the tranquility which was the result of that pity. You get interested, you're onto something and when you get that interest and that uh, enthusiasm for something it fixes the attention on it, it fixes your effort on this one thing. So many people in the world have no tranquility of either body or mind they're always running backwards and forwards from one thing to another, either physically or mentally, because they haven't really seen anything which is truly interesting, which is truly suggestive that this will lead to the liberation from suffering. But once you get that glimpse through having abandoned the <coughs> uh, affliction of bad silo and, and sensory indulgence, once you have that much. I think that's enough to give you the interest that you're on to something. A path to liberation, from liberation from more afflictions of the mind and the body. And this brings rise to the tranquility of the body and the tranquility of the mind. The pasadi just means the mind starts, to, or the body starts to become still. You always used to notice when I began meditating <laughs> that if there was no interest in the mind there would be no contentment and I wouldn't be able to sit meditation for very long. I couldn't will myself to sit for long periods, well I could will myself to sit for long periods of time but it would hurt so much and it would just be effort, effort, effort and the body and the mind would be so tense afterwards. (laughs) And I realized that of course was not the way to sit meditation. If a person tries meditating that way just through brute effort, without getting any piti or pasadi in their meditation. They will not be able to sustain their practice of meditation for very long. (coughs) They'll give it up and do something else because they're not getting any reward, any satisfaction, any fruit from their efforts. But if one meditates in a wise way by developing these factors and developing the interest there in what one is doing, then there's a sense of tranquility of the body and also a sense of tranquility of the mind. It's easy to sit. The body isn't restless. Restless body means there's no real interest in what you're doing. You know what happens when you're meditating and a new experience comes up a new depth of understanding, a new depth of peacefulness you find you can sit for long periods and when the meditation is finished you've got no aches or pains. Why? Because the body was tranquil. It had pasadi. Even when you sleep it's very rare that the body has any pasadi, any tranquility. But in meditation you can sit without moving for far longer than you can lie without moving. So the pasadi of the tranquility of the body arises when the mind becomes interested in these stages of meditation. <coughs> and it's why that <coughs> I've taught people to be interested in, in the, the piti and the pamuja and even the sukha of present moment awareness, of silence, of the breath. Not just to watch any old breath, but to see a beautiful breath. Once you have that pity there, the interest in what you are doing, it's tranquility comes afterwards, it's easy to watch the breath, the breath stays and the mind doesn't wander so much, the body isn't disturbing you, the tranquility of body, the tranquility of attention of mind comes to this quality of pity. And again, you can generate these things, it usually happens as a natural course, but still you can do a little bit of encouragement by looking for that tranquility. And you see that the cause of the tranquility is through piti. Develop that piti, and then you will have the tranquility. You'll be able to sit for long periods of time, that whatever object which you're watching, you can have the tranquility so that the object doesn't move from you. It causes the interest, the joy. I've mentioned this so many times (coughs) that when you're watching these objects it's up to you to put that beauty in there or rather to perceive the beauty. The present moment can be extremely delicious, beautiful, wonderful. And that's the only way you can stay with the present moment. Once you see just how delightful it is, just to be here in this moment and not to be burdened with anything at all from your history (coughs) or from your future. There's a sense of a wonderful freedom of enormous space where the constraints of time no longer apply. As soon as you focus in the present moment it's one of the most delicious abidings the mind can realize. Just that much is delicious let alone if you get into the silent present moment awareness. That too is delicious. A person who recognizes these things is someone who can delight in silence, who can delight in present moment awareness. and Being able to delight in such things is a sign that you have (coughs) gained enough wisdom, enough understanding that you are someone who can really truly be called a meditator. Someone who inclines towards those silent states because you love those states, because you delight in them. Don't delight in the world, don't delight in crowds, don't delight in talking, don't delight in sleeping, don't delight in the, the fantastic thoughts and philosophies which the mind can bring up. Don't even delight in questioning. Delight in that silence of the mind. Delight in the present moment. Delight in your meditation object, say the breath. With that delight in those things, you'll find the tranquility of the body and mind will come up. And the tranquility of the body and mind will of necessity bring a state of ease (laughs) a further degree of freedom, the path of jhanas, the path of liberation, whether it's uh, whatever means you gain liberation, is always a path of deeper and deeper sukha, more and more refined happiness until Nibbana paramang sukha, Nibbana the ultimate, the highest of the blisses. And understanding that means that the more tranquility you have of body, of mind, just the more there is a sense of ease and happiness inside. As the, the breath stabilizes, becomes constant, as that becomes tranquil, there is a happiness which arises together with that breath. That happiness which arises together with that breath is what I've always called the beautiful breath. It is a stage in the meditation which you should know, which you should develop. I call it a beautiful breath even though it does not appear beauty to the the uh, sight. The eye consciousness is not seeing this. I use this word just as a metaphor, as an allegory, to say that at this particular point the breath appears delightful to the 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 thing which is watching it. Instead of just being an ordinary breath, it becomes something which is very attractive, very wonderful. It's just a natural result of pasadi, of the tranquility of the body and the tranquility of the mind. That particular aspect of the breath which appears to be sukha, beauty, happy, is an important development in your meditation. You don't need to do very much here, because this is, as it said, dhammata ta this is a natural consequence, that Sukinochi no samadhi yati. From that happiness, the samadhi will develop. The samadhi, this word samadhi, which most people call concentration, is more like a freeing of the mind, a liberating of the mind. A mind coming to a, a one, one focus. It's liberating it from this thing which we call duality. And that's why that <coughs> the breath will start to appear as a single experience. So often sometimes people are concerned where they should be watching the breath. They should be, sometimes they're concerned whether they should still be watching the in-breath and the out-breath, the beginning or the end. The truth of the matter is that as the the mind calms down is many of these extra perceptions which aren't truly necessary become discarded. And when you're really watching the beautiful breath all you're watching is a beautiful breath as it happens now and the perception of beginning or end has disappeared. The perception of whether this is an in or an out breath has disappeared. The perception whether this is occurring at the tip of your nose or somewhere else has disappeared. All you're knowing, you're simplifying the consciousness, so all you know is just a beautiful breath happening now. If you want to, you can find out where it is. If you want to, you can find out whether it's an in-breath or an (coughs) out-breath. As the simile in the Wisuddhi manga once said, it's like a person who is sawing a piece of wood. When you're sawing a piece of wood and you're focusing on the point where the saw touches the wood, at first, you're very much aware of the whole saw and so you know whether that particular saw tooth cutting the wood right now is at the top end of the saw or the bottom end of the saw or the middle of the saw or somewhere else. But as you focus your attention not only at that one point in space but at one point in time and you let go of all the perceptions of the past and future of left and right all you really know is that one tooth that one point of that one tooth next to that little piece of wood. and You don't know whether that tooth is at the beginning or the end of the saw. You've let go of that perception. You've even let go of the perception whether that tooth is moving downwards or upwards, whether it's the forward um, stroke of the saw or the reverse, bringing the saw back up again the perception of in and out disappears. You're simplifying, you're letting go. This is what happens with samadhi. <laughs> you're letting go of so many aspects, busyness of consciousness. Now I was uh, just looking at a quote from the Sutta Nipata uh, earlier on, I don't know if I can remember it completely, but it goes something like <coughs> uh, sabhadu kāṁ Vinyana Pachaya Vinyana Pachayang Vinyana Pachaya, sorry that all suffering is caused by consciousness by conscious activity and it's a powerful teaching in the Sutta Nipata, where it says all suffering, it's all caused because of conscious activity. And this is why samadhi brings up deeper degrees of of sukha, of happiness, of peacefulness, because samadhi is, is calming conscious activity down. It's emptying out the contents of conscious activity. It's simplifying it. It's taking the diversity of consciousness which for most human beings is a multiplicity going so fast frantically that you cannot really understand much of what's going on at all. I've given a simile in in Nolamara about a person who is riding in a fast car, a person who is going in a slow car, a person who is walking, and a person who's standing still. For those poor people, who really sees the countryside around them? The person in a fast car looks out of the window, things flash by so quickly that they've only got fleeting images. They c- the mind just cannot take all the information in. The person in a slow car has got a better view of the scenery. But you notice the difference between going in a a slow car and walking. As you walk you can see so much more. If you stand absolutely still and just allow the scenery to soak into your consciousness, you can see deeply into what you're watching. In the same way with the multiplicity of conscious experience which we have in the world. It's like being in a fast car. Even when you're in a monastery, but not doing samadhi. It's like going in a slow car. When you start to concentrate the mind, and you get to stages like the the beautiful breath, you're walking. You can see much deeper into the nature of things. It's only when you stop, when you're standing still, can you really expect to have enough time, enough breath to be able to see fully. If you uh, want to understand that simile further, just notice what happens when you go for a walk in the monastery. How much you see. And what happens when you just stop. Don't even turn left or turn right, just watch in front of you. How much more you see with your eyes. It's a diversity which runs so quickly across our senses which confuses us as to the true nature of things. We need to slow down. We need to slow down even as monks and nuns, Anagarikas. We need to slow down in our minds. We need to stop. That's what Samadhi does. It gets you to Ekagata, just to one peak, one point, so basically there's nowhere else to go at the top of a mountain, at its peak, at its summit, there's nowhere else to go. It's a sense of unity at the peak of a mountain, where all the sides come together at the point called the summit. (coughs) It's a point where above there's emptiness, where around you there's all emptiness. This is the, the nature of samadhi. As the mind delights in the beautiful breath, the breath disappears, and one is left with the beautiful. It is a a wonderful, an accurate simile according to my experience of what happens when nimiters arise. All that a nimitta is, it's a simplifying of the consciousness. The mind has not come to ekagata yet, to one, oneness of mind. When there's a nimitta there, there's usually a duality. For most meditators, there's still the sense of something watching that nimitta. There's never a sense of absorbing and being unified with that nimitta. That nimitta is just a reflection of the mind, but still some separation there. Still a duality. The mind is just a bit too complicated. Hasn't really settled down, hasn't really simplified. When you understand the path of, of simplifying the mind, Going from multiplicity to duality, from duality to singleness, and then from singleness to nothingness, to emptiness. Going through that (coughs) stage of simplifying, those stages of calming, of tranquilizing, of settling, of smoothing over, of abandoning, of renouncing. It's a very good, theme for your meditation, to simplify. How can I simplify the mind even more? How can I let go of more diversity, more multiplicity? Look at the mind like a table, your desk. How can I simplify things? How can I get rid of things? How can I let go, renounce, give up things? So there's no more work on my table. How can I let go of the table as well? How can I let go of the room in which the table is? To let go of everything. As one lets go of the room where the table is, one is letting go of the world, the five senses. This is all what happens when one merges with the nimitta. (coughs) Letting go of everything and going to a state of unity. That really is samadhi the Samasamadhi of the Eightfold Path. The only place where, honestly, where I think you can really apply the word Ekagata. The only place where there's a unity of consciousness, not a duality. In fact, even though the Ekagata is said to be a factor of the first jhana, it's only an approximation to Ekagata. There is still a final wobble in the mind a little bit of duality caused by the of the, the mind just wobbling on the sukha. It's only really in the second jhana I say there's, there's a full samadhi of full unity of the mind where there is no ever sense of an observer watching observed. Those two have come to a unity. There's no separation from the observer to the observed. No way you can separate those two. No way you can do anything. Completely stuck inside. And it's a very blissful experience because (coughs) every time you let go of something and simplify, it gets a more profound degree of happiness. This is really when you can have a kagata of gone to oneness. So often the illusion of a knower comes from a separation of the knower and the known. An idea of there's something watching all of this which is happening out there. The sense that there's not just a screen but there's a person sitting on a chair in the theatre watching what's going on in the screen. It's the illusion of individuality. <coughs> when is the Experience of unity of consciousness. It's very easy to know that that particular type of individuality, of a watcher, of a knower, of an observer, is disappeared. It's an illusion. It's gone. Because there, there's awareness, there's consciousness. But that observer, which you thought was always there, has been discontinued. One is experiencing in a fundamentally completely different manner. It's only when one emerges out after jhana where one can take that experience of jhana as an object of consciousness, that the perception of something watching that memory of jhana can occur, that duality arises again of the knower and the known. So this is how, through the experience of samadhi, you can, as they say in this sutta, that you can see things as they truly are. Yatabhuta, Yatabhutang, Janati, Pasati. You actually see the reality. You're seeing things not in the way of illusions, based on <coughs> ideas and concepts which sound, com- which sound and feel comfortable to the unenlightened person. But well, you're seeing things according to the true nature of the body and the mind and all that's inside of us. You're seeing it according to the, how the Buddha saw it. We just chanted all about the, the six senses and how they are all on fire. And how that if one realised they were all on fire, that isn't that enough to feel revulsion, nibida towards these things? Sometimes that uh, people uh, do not fully uh, render that term nibida in its truly apparent uh, meaning in the Pitaka. There is a resistance to translate it in such a negative terms because so many Western Buddhists think that surely the Buddha could not have praised revulsion, aversion, turning away from things. Surely he was saying, embrace, accept, be at peace with. And This is not true. In the same way that you would look at something on fire That is Nibida. If your robe was on fire, would you just sit there and say, just let it be. This is the way things are. I'm going to just be at peace and be equanimous with this. Or would you try and put it out? If this hall was on fire, would you just sit here and say, just be mindful? Or would you run out of the door? would you escape? This is what Nibhida means. It's that which sees the problem and decides to escape. It's that force which pushes you off the metaphorical wheel of samsara. Just letting things be equanimity will just keep you, just resting on that wheel you need to push off. You need to have that realization of the predicament one is in, in order to do what is finally necessary to end this whole process. Libida is the revulsion from the world, not the acceptance of the world, not the being at peace with the world, but the turning away from the world and the turning away from the mind. As the Buddha used to say, house builder, I've seen you. No more will you build any houses, will you build any more <coughs> existences for me. It's only from that nibida that we can expect to have a Viraga. The Viraga of the, the fading away of the passions, of the cravings, of the delights, which ties on to samsara. To be able to free oneself from the knot, one has to untie it first of all, not leave it alone, but to untie it, to cut it in the same way that one was put out of fire, or one would just escape from the burning house. This is the burning house of the six senses. We escape from the five-sense burning house first and then we can escape from the sixth sense, from the mind. From Viraga, we achieve Nirodha, the cessation, the ending of all of this. Nirodha, means the cessation of all of the candors, of all of the ayatanas, the senses. Nirodha leads to the full ending, the ending of everything. So often that people who haven't passed through the process, who haven't seen things as they truly are, would always like to keep something, like to have suffering end, but not to have me end, or not to have cosmic consciousness end, or to keep something. Not have the, the full ending, the full cessation. So only when the causes which stop Niroda, the causes of the uh, defilements, of the Kilesas, <coughs> of the cravings, of the Upadanas, when those causes are seen to be fully cut off because of Nibida. Only when those jatavas, those those fire worshippers, saw through that beautiful teaching of the Lord Buddha that all the senses are on fire, only then were they able to completely let go of their attachment, their concern, their interest, their delight in those six senses. through Nibhida, they could untie the knot. Having untied the knot, they knew there was nothing left. And then they could know of freedom, Vimuti. And <coughs> this in that <coughs> sequence in the Sangyuta is what happens next. For someone who develops Viraga based on Nibida, they don't have to wish or to hope May, my, may I experience liberation. But liberation happens as a natural course and for the person who is liberated using the sense of person, only sort of uh, allegorically. For when liberation happens, I should be more precise, that one does not have to wish, it's natural, it always happens, the knowledge arises I am liberated, or liberation has occurred. So often that people in the West say, everyone is enlightened, they just don't know it. That's not what the Buddha said. For those who are liberated, the knowledge of liberation happens as a natural course. Dhammata is a way. This is the nature of things. This is a beautiful teaching which is repeated, or its last terms are repeated, in so many different places in the Pitaka. It's well worth keeping in mind these factors of this path to liberation. Here it started off with just Sila. And you're already, every one of you is on that path and sila leads to the lack of remorse, lack of remorse, to paramuja, the gladness, the happiness just to be here, that leads to pasadi, the tranquility, the tranquility which lets you settle down in body, settle down in mind, which leads to the beautiful ease and happiness and beauty in one's meditation, which leads to the disappearance of the five senses, the leads to the unity of consciousness in the jhanas, which leads to seeing things truly as they are. Five, six senses are on fire, which leads you to letting go through revulsion to these senses, which leads you to liberation. <coughs> as you say in that beautiful sutta, Wusutang Brahmacharyam, The holy life has been lived. You've finished your task. For those of you who've been building monasteries, who've been fighting clay pits, who've been mending things, who've been writing books, who've been doing whatever you've been doing in your life, does it ever occur to you, when is all this going to be finished? When can I truly retire? This is the only time you can truly retire. This is the only time in existence when someone can say they're finished. Brahmacharyana. they finished with the holy life. Even people who are disrobe, they're not finished with the holy life, they have to take it up again later, they're just putting it aside. Maybe one life, two life, three life, they have to come back to this. So this is the only time you can be finished. Don't you want to be finished? You still want to keep on working, having to do things and all the busyness of all this. Rusutang Brahmacharyang Naparang Itatayati There's no more of all this. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for you to say, no more of all this? Haven't you had enough yet? Most of you, you might say, yes I have, but you don't really mean it. There's only part of this you've had enough of, not all. This is how we put an end to suffering. This is how we lead ourselves to that which is called nibbana. This is how we end samsara, cease. So this is the little sutta uh, discussed and uh, adding a few things from my own experience uh, on the way of meditation for you this evening. And it's a natural process, by you know, just hurrying it along a bit and uh, hopefully that each one of you will experience each one of these stages on the path. Understand how the, the whole path works. It's good to have a map when you're going on a journey, even though you may not be at the destination yet, at least you know the way the whole journey works. And that way you never get lost, you don't need to worry about doubts, you have an understanding of where you're going. And what you need to do. So that's enough for this talk for this evening. Uh, I'll open up for maybe three questions if anyone has a question on the talk for this evening, if there are any. Is there any question anyone would like to ask? Yes. Guilt which is based on on nothing Yes uh, a lot of uh, most of remorse is the stuff which really hurts. Uh, the powerful stuff is that which is based on on something wrong which you really have done. you've broken your seal. Uh, however, I did point out that uh, Sila also uh, includes the Indriya Samvara Sila, the restraint of the, the six senses. And so often like the guilt uh, arises because one isn't really restraining and looking after the sixth sense of mind through thinking. One allows thoughts to keep turning over in the mind. and there is a certain type of thinking which gives rise to guilt. Thinking, what did I do, why did I do that? Unfortunately this is a a tendency uh, for Westerners, it's not really found so much in uh, Asian cultures. I think it probably has been put into us through our, our Christian conditioning of trying to feel guilty for something. And uh, usually, when you're young, if you do a mistake and you tell your mother or your father you feel guilty, they let you off with a lighter punishment. So you, sometimes you're encouraged to admit guilt and to feel guilt. But a lot of time, if one uses the mind wisely and restrains some of those thinking processes, one does not need to get into groundless guilt there was uh, a monk some years ago in uh, Wat chart in Thailand who at the time when I was a storeman uh, took something from the stores without my permission <coughs> and thought that he committed a grave offense of stealing and he worried about that for about a week and losing sleep and I, in the end I couldn't convince him the the head monk at that time, or I think it was Ajahn Sumato, could not convince him. He had to go and see Ajahn Chah, walk over to Wat Bapong, thinking that he was going there to confess a Parajika of offence and disrobe and be a lay person when he came back. He thought he'd really blown it. And Ajahn Chah heard his story and said to him, and this is a very, this shows how a wise teacher dealt with guilt. He said, If you committed such a grave offence, Pārājika, you'd have known it at the time. What was happening is, after the event, he knew at the time he wasn't Pārājika, but the mind had got hold of that event, had amplified it, had perverted it, had grown it out of all proportion, had added other details in, which weren't there at the time he took that thing he built up a very different scenario than what had actually happened. And that's why he felt guilty. So often at the time we do these things, that's when we really know if we're really breaking the precepts or not. Sometimes afterwards, just the way that we remember things, the way that our thinking works, it makes a scenario up which never really happened. And from that scenario we make ourselves feel guilty. It's happened to me before, I've said something to somebody and afterwards I thought I shouldn't have said that. I wonder what they, they thought of that and I start pondering over it <coughs> and I start to think that's the worst thing I've ever said to anyone. And I go up to the afterwards and say, I have to apologise to you, sorry for saying that. You know what they say, say what? Say those same words I said to you. I, y- I know you didn't mean that. I'd made myself feel guilty because of all my careless and stupid thinking, building up a scenario which wasn't really really there. When you look back upon the past, when you use memory, that memory can so easily be perverted and can grow into something which was not really true. This is what thinking can do. It's called Papancha, proliferation. Your memory of the past should not be trusted. That's why the guilt is just looking back upon something you did in the past. You're not really sure if your memory is true or not. If you were (coughs) uh, truly guilty, you'd have known at the time. So that's like baseless remorse and I think that's for many people that's how how it arises. The, the, the thinking changes what actually happens. Does that, does that make sense? Was there another question anyone wanted to ask about the talk before we close? Is it the defilements which work to make things different than they are? Indeed, yes. It's uh, the defilements, uh, three defilements of uh, greed or desire. And the other one is ill will. So often it's ill will towards oneself. And the third is stupidity. <laughs> and that's usually the biggest culprit. And it's the stupidity because so often we, we follow the training of other stupid people. We're encouraged to feel guilty. We feel it's right to feel guilty. And we can even actually wallow in that guilt and feel good about it. It's a stupidity of uh, bad conditioning. Okay, I think that's enough for this evening.